Welcome to the Venture Church Podcast. We strive to lead people to be God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. Our goal is to tear down the walls that have kept people away from church to help them build a relationship with God, our Creator. We are so glad you're tuning in today. We hope and pray that this leads you to Jesus and His path for your life. So, without further ado, here is today's teaching. Is there anyone in the room? Now, this is your time to shine, okay? Is there anyone in the room who has ever been part of a championship sports team? Just curious. You got, you're brave enough to raise your hand? Yes. Has anyone ever won a state championship with a team, like in high school or something? Am I missing you? Uh, I was hoping this would be because you were like, yeah, does, did you? Really? Coaching. You were coaching the team? Yeah. What sport? Basketball. Basketball. Yeah. See, you win a state championship. It's awesome for the minute, but then like years later, you try to tell the story and no one else cares. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but uh, I wish Nathan Myers was here. I think he's been in a couple state championship teams. Doesn't it feel good to win? Uh, I've played on a lot of teams, and unfortunately, I have not experienced that kind of victory. I mostly have lost, and like, it's character building and stuff, eh. I'd rather win. Uh, winning is much more fun. We enjoy winning. You got a favorite sports team? You know what you want to watch them do? Win. No one shows up at the Super Bowl going like, you know, I hope there's just some good display of sportsmanship here today. That would be great. Because not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. No, no, no. No one shows up to the championship game thinking that. They're like, I want to carry home a trophy. Trophies are in some moments way cooler than building your own character. Now, I'm a parent. I want my kids to have character. But you get it. In sports, You want to win. That's what you want to do. Uh, Now, here's the thing. The same thing is true in life. Like, we have this phrase we use. There's a sign language for it. No one wants to be a loser, right, in life. And it's a big deal. We want to win at life. And we spend a lot of time trying for that, don't we? Here's the problem. We have a hard time deciding what that means. What does it mean to win at life? You know, what is success? How can I know that I, that I did it, that I won? If I had enough money in the bank account, did I win? If I had my retirement planned early enough, does that count? If I have a fantastic marriage, does that count? If, if I raise my kids and they turn up, uh, turn out okay. Like that, I finally made it like we survived another generation. What is victory? What does it mean to win? We're in this last week of our teaching series uh, called Wilderness Men. And our goal through this series has been to check in on the lives of some men in the Bible who spend a lot of time outside. Uh, it's getting close to summer, uh, you know, and it's good to be outside. We live in Wilmington. And so I thought it would be a cool thing to check into these people who spent their lives, much of them, living in the great outdoors. And so we've learned some great lessons from the outdoors. What we found is all throughout the Bible, uh, when someone is being raised up to serve in a place of leadership, uh, or they're being kind of risen up to make a big difference in the world. So often they find themselves walking in a moment of wilderness. Sometimes it's days, sometimes it's years. And it might be that you're in a wilderness phase in your life right now where you're like, I don't know which way's up. I don't know how things are going right now. I want want to encourage you. Many times on the end of that wilderness phase is a great revelation where God is like, okay, you're ready. You're ready. And many of you experienced that. Last week we talked about the roller coaster that Elijah went through. And so we've learned things about legacy. We learned about strength. We learned, uh, we talked a little bit about depression and overcoming that and finding success. And all these things are stories from the wild. This week the lesson is about victory. Victory. And we learn it from probably one of the coolest wilderness men ever, my personal favorite. His name is Jesus. Jesus is quite the wilderness man. And what's really cool is that Uh, is that he's a man's man. Like there's this lie that's been propagated through art for hundreds of years that Jesus is this wimpy pacifist pansy 
with like, he never did a hard day of labor in his life, and he's got this salon perfect hair, and he speaks with like this certain accent that just lets you know he's cultured, and like maybe, maybe that makes you feel good to think Jesus is that way, but here's what we know about Jesus. Jesus is anything but all of that. Jesus was a tough dude. Just from his very childhood, you see that his earthly father, Joseph, uh, Scripture says he was a builder, and so that's been interpreted as maybe he was a carpenter. I tend to lean towards from some of the reading that I've done that he might have been actually more of like a stone worker. There was all these, the word is builder there, and so the, 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 the work that was going on through the Roman Empire at the time to build these huge cities and places for common use, and uh, there was a big project going on that people think that Joseph himself may have been involved in with, a lot, with thousands of other workers. Jesus grew up with that as his family trait. And so as Jesus comes up, you know what he did day in and day out was help his dad do stuff because that's what you do at this time period in the world. He was a man's man in his adult life, particularly in like the three, three and a half years that we really see of his life and his public ministry. We see that he spent most of his life on the land. He is traveling from city to city, from village to village. Jesus himself says, you know, birds have nests, foxes have dens. I don't even have anywhere to lay my head. This guy's camping. He's building fires, he's cleaning fish, he's walking in the sun, he's getting calloused hands and blisters on his feet. This is a guy who's lived real life. This is Jesus. And on top of that, just his character is interesting because uh, though he does have a very gentle and meek character, and these are characteristics that are very important about Jesus, he's no stranger to conflict. He's not scared to stand up for what he believes is right, even in the face of very powerful, influential people. What a role model. And this isn't just about men, it's about humanity. To look at someone who says, I can take the good and I can take the bad and I can glorify God with it and I can do it when it's hard and I can do it when it's complicated. And that is the Jesus that we serve. And so today as we look at our final wilderness man, we're gonna look at a scene from his life where not only does he spend a lot of time in the wilderness, but he also teaches us a big lesson about what it means to win, about victory. So uh, if you got a Bible today, I'd encourage you to grab it. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is the quintessential wilderness men story. It's the thing that this whole series has been building up to. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, feel free to grab one as you leave. There's free ones on the little table right as you leave the room. So it's free Bibles. Take one. We want everyone to have a good readable version of the Bible of their very own. Uh, Matthew is a, it's Matthew chapter 4 is where we'll be. Matthew is one of the four biographies of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All stories of Jesus' life. And when we land in Matthew chapter let me give you a little bit of context of what we're walking into in verse one. But before we like read it, this is what's happening in the story. Jesus is about to embark upon his public ministry. He's in his 30s now, okay? And he's been through a lot of life and he's done all the stuff that he was gonna do with his earthly father, Joseph. And he's, he's, gonna, he's, he's been through life, but now he's about to do the ministry portion of his life. And right before he does that, he goes and visits a guy named John the Baptist. We actually learned about John the Baptist. It's been many months. Uh, it was, I think, the first Sunday of the new year this year. We talked about John the Baptist. So if you wanna know about him, go back and listen to that on our podcast. Uh, but John was a wilderness man in his own right, maybe even more so, more grisly than any other guys that we covered. Uh, but he goes, to John, and he goes for a very specific reason. He, he wants to be baptized by John. And when he gets to John, John and he have this whole scene, and finally John agrees to baptize him, and, and this amazing scene happens. In this moment, Jesus goes into the water, he comes back up, and then this rumbling voice comes from heaven, and it's the voice of God, and it says, this is my son 
and I'm very pleased with him. And so you got the voice of God. And then the other thing that happens is this thing that it says it looks like a dove, like a bird, begins to uh, descend from the sky. And it says the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And so the Holy Spirit shows up like in a, a manifested physical form. That's pretty cool. So you got the voice of God the Father. You got the manifested physical presence of the Holy Spirit. And then who just went under the water? Jesus. And in case you don't know this, Jesus is the physical human form of God. When God wants to put skin on and come into the game with us, he's Jesus. And in this moment, we have what has been traditionally called the whole Trinity show up. God the Father, God in his spirit form, God as a human being right there. And in this moment, we talked last week about Elijah. Even if you missed it, you can understand this. Life is a roller coaster. You ever experienced that? And so right after you get to one of these really high moments, this is a moment where God in his fullest form, shows up in one spot and says, let's do this thing. Let's do the earthly ministry that's going to lead all mankind back to God. This mountaintop, top of the roller coaster experience, Jesus is about to take a nosedive into what's going to be one of the hardest times of his life. And so it says that after that, look in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The book of Mark uh, is another biography of Jesus' life. It adds, he was with wild animals, which to me just makes it all the more Bear Grylls-esque. You know, he's out there and he's on his own. He's, why is he doing this? Well, the whole point of Jesus starting this public ministry is what, what we call his you know, life where he does all his teaching and traveling. The whole point of him starting this public ministry is because he wants to uh, inaugurate, inaugurate a new era for mankind. And he wants, first of all, to let the Jewish world know. Because for generations, there had been this prophecy that God was going to send a savior, that he was going to send a Messiah that's going to connect mankind back to God. And he wanted them to know, I'm it. I'm him. And then a little bit later, he's going to go through this really rigorous, painful death where he's going to give his life for all humanity. And in all throughout the Bible, when we see a great leader raised up, what God does for them is he takes them on a journey through what we call their period of the wilderness. And for Jesus, it is a test of what kind of savior will you be? Can you, can you live this human life the way that you're going to need to live it so that you can make the sacrifice that you're going to need to make? Uh, I want to take a second and, and step aside and talk about what he's about to face because it says he's been led into the wilderness to be tempted by, who did it say? The devil. And when we picture the devil, maybe you watched a lot of cartoons growing up and you got the you know, horns, the tail, the pitchfork. Uh, we come, become a little bit cynical about the devil. Uh, I know there are a lot of Christians who are like, I don't know if the devil's like a real person more so than an idea of like evil and bad. And I don't know if you believe in the devil. I believe in the devil. I completely believe in the devil. He's also called Satan in the Bible. He's called a lot of different things in the Bible. Uh, some thing, we don't know a lot about the devil, uh, but there are some things that we do know. Okay, the first thing we know about the devil, one of the main things we know about the devil is he was created by God. Created. He's not like equal to God. He's not like yin to God's yang or whatever it is. He's not like the evil force combating God's good force. That's not who the devil is. He was created, in, and I'm not going to try to give some great devilology here now because I'll be honest. As I look through the Bible, I think there's a fairly limited amount of things we do know about the devil. But from what we understand, he was a created being. At one point, he was probably good. Sort of like an angel, he was probably an angel. And then at some point, he like leads this rebellion against God. And he's still in that rebellion right now. And so he's got all kinds of other strong spiritual forces working with him. And so for people who say, I don't believe in the devil, I don't believe in demons, I, I'd, I'd encourage you to, to, to 
you know, continue to work through that, think about it. I don't know that it really matters, heaven or hell, for you, whether or not you believe in them. But here's what I would challenge you to do. Look at the world around us and just ask yourself, like, why is there so much evil in the world? And I'm going to tell you what my opinion is, that there are forces behind that evil that are making it difficult. And that Jesus' mission to come into the world was to step in between that evil and the God who loves us and to form a bridge for us so that we can be reunited with God. The devil shows up to tempt Jesus because Jesus, being all-powerful God, was going to find himself at his weakest human state during the story we're about to read. And this is going to be the devil's one opportunity to get a sucker punch in on God. And if he can do it there, if he can maybe put a stop or even slow down this thing that Jesus is about to do, maybe the devil can start to reclaim some of this kingdom that he's going to end up losing to Jesus. And what we're about to walk into is a boxing match. It's a battle. And it's divided into three rounds. You ever watch boxing? Ding, ding. Fight. This is where it goes. So here we go. Matthew chapter 2, chapter 4, verse 2. So he's been out in the wilderness, and after fasting, this is Jesus, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's like the biggest understatement in the Bible. Um, yeah, he was hungry. Like some of us have a hard time missing a meal. Uh, <laughs> this lunch, I'm going to probably kill someone. Uh, I'm going to need a Snickers. Uh, we really need to work this out. So D- Jesus is missing 40 days worth of meals. That's 120 meals. It's dangerous to do math in public. Um, is that right? That's a lot of meals. And so this is Jesus, and he is hungry. So this is the point where the devil approaches him after 40 days without food. Now, there's a thing that we have to interject here. I want us to understand two things about God. We're going to put one here and one here, though Jesus brings them together. Uh, Jesus is fully God. We see that in so many of the things he does, his miracles, his ability to kind of know what people are feeling and thinking. Obviously, his ability to raise from the dead would be his biggest proof of that. So does God need food? Like, how hungry is God going to get in 40 days? Uh, been doing eternity without it. Don't really need food. So why is Jesus hungry? Well, because he's also decided, we read about it in Philippians chapter 2, that he has humbled himself and become a human. And he has been, somehow, it blows our minds, capable of being both fully God, but taking on fully human form. The reason for that, there's a lot of reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is so that he can fully experience human life. He's going to have to step in the gap to say, I am going to claim a salvation for all of humanity, and I want to be a a God that humans can look to and, and revere and honor. And how much cooler is it that God says, I want to go through the life that you went through. I know what it was like to be hungry. I know what it was like to have urges. I know what it was like... He's fully God, he's fully man, and in this moment, he chooses to take on the fully human form and be without food. Round one, ding, ding, devil shows up. Verse three, the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of man, son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil shows up when Jesus' weakest physical point and says, listen, if you're the son of God, you love that if, if you're the son of God, because if you are, I mean, what are you hungry for? Look, all these rocks around here, just, if you created all the world, if you are the son of God, tell these rocks they become bread. And Jesus is physically weak. The devil knows that this is one of his only chances to take a jab at God. Prove yourself. 
show up. In this moment, the devil attacks what I think is one of the easiest things for him to attack on us. He attacks Jesus' very identity. That if, moms, if you're a good mom, and the devil attacks. Dads, look, if you're a good dad, the devil attacks. Homeowners, employers, if you're good at this, and the devil attacks. He questions us at the core of our being. He questions our identity. And then we step back and go, well, am I? Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't bow down. He quotes scripture. He says, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is in this period of time called a fast, and maybe you've fasted for various reasons. It's going without something that your body physically needs so that you can focus on something spiritual. And though our physical bodies do need food eventually, you can go a long time without food, but how long can you go without a soul? How long can you go without spiritual health? And this is a time where Jesus has stepped away and said, look, you know, I have more faith in God's power than in my body. And he quotes the scripture to them. Uh, You know, isn't that just how it happens with us? We get physically weak. We start to question our identity. And then that thing, you know what it is. Maybe there's two or three of them. They begin to flow into your mind. Like, maybe I need this to be healthy. Maybe I need this to be happy. Maybe I need this to be strong. But Jesus says, no, I don't need that. All I need is the word of God in my life. Ding, ding. Fighters to your corners. Round one's over. Now, here's the thing. Uh, in the boxing match, uh, you know, the fighters go to their corner. They got the dude, you know, fixing their bloody faces and giving them water and everything. And you're sitting there and you're getting coaching for the next moment. And you did good in the first round. You made it. But this is where we start to let our guard down. We start to say, whoo, I made it, I made it. And if you have had an addiction in your life or something that you've really dealt with that comes back and back and back and back, you know that making it through the first wave is nothing. Because the other fighter's in the corner and he's gonna come out swinging. Round two starts. Ding, ding. We don't know how this actually happens. Uh, we're gonna find Jesus in a second in a different place. He's gonna be in Jerusalem. He's gonna be on top, on top of the temple. If you wanna picture Jerusalem, it's built on a hill, on a big mountain. And, and, and so the top part of the temple, of the city had some of the more prominent buildings. The, the, the king's palace was there and the temple is up there. And so when you stand on top of the temple in Jerusalem, you can kind of see like for miles. And for some reason, we don't know if this is like he physically got moved there or maybe this is happening kind of in a vision type form, but we're gonna find Jesus and the devil on top of the temple, verse five. So then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says, if, there it goes again, if, if you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Once again, he questions Jesus' identity. If you are the son of God, and then check this. uh, In round one, Satan tempted Jesus through scripture back at him. Did you see what the devil used as his offensive weapon this time? The Bible. The devil comes right out of the gate going, hey, you know what the Bible says, right? The Bible says you can throw yourself off this temple and God's going to sing angels to share you. Now, here's the thing. There is a verse. You can look it up. Psalm 91, 11, 12. 
It's in there. Uh, but the context of this verse does not say, therefore, go throw yourself in front of a bus because God's going to save you. Go do terrible, crazy, ridiculous things because God has power to save. That's not the context of this passage. But that is what it says. God will command his angels concerning you and you won't strike your heel on a stone. The devil will do this to us, guys. He will come right at us with good, wholesome things. He will use people to misuse scripture in his name. He will take good, godly principles and good, godly things the one that pops in my mind right now is the way that we use intimacy and sex in our culture. God created that for a holy purpose. But we're like, well, I mean, but we're in love. We like each other. It's more convenient to pay one rent than two. And there's all these things that we do. And that's like, there's so many different ways that we can just come right in and be like, well, you know, but God does say this. And it's so easy for us to be attempted and drawn away and use scripture to justify our sin. And this is what the devil tries to pull on Jesus. Jesus is no fool. Jesus says, oh, yeah? Well, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Yeah, God's going to take care of me, but there's no reason to be foolish about this. And Jesus does it again. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't balk. He doesn't take a hesitation. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. By the way, he was quoting scripture. I meant to give you the other one, too. He, that scripture is from Deuteronomy 6, 16. And if I can find it quickly... The other one, uh, man shall not live on bread alone, is Deuteronomy 8.3. Both of these. Jesus has internalized these scriptures on his heart. He knows them, and he's ready when it comes. Ding, ding, round two is over. Brings us to round three. Jesus two, devil zero. It's not over yet. You, you know if you ever watch boxing, it really doesn't matter who's winning at halfway through. <laughs> you got to go all the way through. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain this time and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all their splendor, all this I will give to you, the devil said to Jesus. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down to me. Now, when you read this, you're like, well, that seems like a stupid proposition. Like, why would the devil even think that Jesus would be tempted by this? Um, but I think there's probably more to it than we can even understand. Remember, Jesus has been alone and hungry for 40 days. He's exhausted. Uh, he's going through this spiritual battle right now, which if you've been through some strong spiritual battle, it'll it, it wipe you out, man. You just want to curl up and cry. And he's allowing himself to be in his physical form right now. And I don't want to over-speculate here, uh, but whatever, whatever's going on with Jesus, I think this was probably the hardest one for him to resist because we tend to see that the devil throws harder and harder things at us as life goes on. And so um, the question is this. How can the devil offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world? Like, if God created the world, wouldn't all the world be his? So here's kind of the philosophical question that you on. If you think about all the kingdoms of the world, all the governments of the world, all the leaders of the world, who would you say that most kingdoms throughout history have been loyal to? God or evil things and selfishness? Just a question. Not that all governments are bad. I'm not that guy. I'm just saying, are most governments bent on serving God? No. Most of them are bent on serving that government, and many times a dictator or sometimes even being evil. And so what's interesting is though, though the devil can't say, like, I own the world, he can't say, I own the hearts of these people. And you see what he's offering him? You know what Jesus has come to earth to do? Jesus came to earth to win the hearts of the people back to God. And the devil is saying, listen, I can give you a shortcut. <laughs> I already have the hearts of the people. I'll tell you what, you remember that, soon, that scene in, in Star Wars where uh, if you go to a Star Wars reference, I know you lose like at least a quarter of the audience, but 
There's just, there's just, the rest of you, though, are, are good people. Um, <laughs> Darth Vader goes to Luke Skywalker and says, join me. Darth Vader's the bad guy, by the way. <laughs> Luke's the good guy. He says, join me, and we can rule together. And this is essentially what the devil's doing. Well, Jesus, look, I already have the hearts of the people. You want the hearts of the people? Join me. This is a shortcut to the, around the cross. And if you don't think Jesus is interested in that, do you remember his very last scene before he goes to the cross? He goes to a garden and he prays to God, Lord, this, this is hard. And if there's any other way to redeem the world other than sending me to this cross, and it's not just the cross, it's not the pain, it's the spiritual weight of all the sin of all the world. He says, if there's any other way for us to, to do this, can we please do that? So if you don't think Jesus was at least slightly interested in his human form and finding another way, he says it himself. And the devil comes to him and says, I got it. Bow down to me. I'll give you the hearts of the people we can lead together. But Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't hesitate. He simply says, away from me, Satan. This is verse 10. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. The temptation on this final round was for Jesus to throw his mission away, to take a shortcut, to do the easy thing. But he knew that that's, that's not what he should have done, and he knew that even worse than that would have been to turn his heart away from serving God. There are no shortcuts to the gates of the kingdom of heaven. There's not. There's only one passage. Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father through me. And it's hard to grasp that sometimes because sometimes we're like, what if I'm just a really good person? Or what if I have, what if I have really a good church attendance? Or what if this and what if that? But there are no f- shortcuts. And so in this scene, Jesus takes out the final temptation and he moves on and ding, ding, hand up in the air. Winner! And it's easy to see that scene and, and just kind of move past it, but I want to take it to a moment. Uh, this, past, uh, this past year, I guess it was in the fall, um, I helped coach my son's football team. And uh, much as it's hard to say, uh, we weren't very good. <laughs> we had a hard time winning games. And, and week after week, uh, the boy, there was reasons. I mean, the boys were, uh, we had a lot of boys who were first time ever playing football. So there's that. And you know the rules. Some boys line up on the wrong side of the ball. You're like, okay, this way. Oh, goodness. Um, you know, that's their foot there. You got them a touchdown. All right. Well, not. there's that. There's also, uh, we buy easily, this is not just excuses. We were like the smallest team in the division. And so like, we're going to, size is important in football. Also, probably their worst thing is uh, they had this assistant coach, um, me. <laughs> and uh, so I was a defensive coordinator and I'm not sure that we defended anything. Um, and so those three things, they had them stacked against them. And so it was hard for them to win games. And I remember it was, man, they played their little hearts out. And we're all about, you know, guys, it's your attitude that counts. It's the championship heart. I mean, we told us, and we believed it because we know that in our hearts. But it was one game, this one boy's walking away at his head down. We'd lost, and he was going to his mom for a Gatorade and to be done with football. And I went over and put my hand on his shoulder. I said, hey, buddy, it's okay, man. Keep your head up. You played hard. You did great. You did this play. You did that play. Look, we'll get him next time. He said, Coach Chris, no, we won't. <laughs> he said, we can't win football games. And then he walked away out speechless. And you know what's kind of sad? Is that he was kind of right. 
We did not win a single game the whole season. There was the forfeit. We got the forfeit. And we had pizza. Um, but, you know, it happens in life sometimes when you lose enough times, you start to walk with your head down and go, I can't win. Can't win. There's no way. No, we won't beat them next time. I won't overcome this temptation, this sin, this situation. I won't because I can't win. Every time I play, I lose. I can't win. I can't win. Me and you, we're not going to be tempted to turn stones into bread, but we're tempted to do other things that we know are not right. And over and over, we have the idea that we, we can't win. And we get to this point in our lives where we, we get used to losing And that's why I'm so happy about the story of Jesus in the wilderness. Because what he shows us is, even when you can't win, I can. I did, and I will, and I'm not scared of a sucker punch from the devil himself. And Jesus slammed, man, out of the park, grand slam, homer, TKO. You pick your sport, you pick your metaphor. Jesus won. And then what he offers us in return is you can hop on my bandwagon. You can pick up on what I'm putting down. You can live the life that I'm promising. And even when you get beat up and even when you lose, I win. And I guarantee you that if you follow me, you will never, ever lose. And you're going to be faced with with temptations. And though you're not going to be asked to turn stones into bread, you are going to face your own things. There's a pattern to sin. I want us to be aware of the pattern, and then I want to celebrate the victory. That's what we got left today. Can you stick with me on that? Here's the pattern. Okay, we see this. There's a lot of different places you can look for this. A lot of people look to 1 John 2, 16. 1 John 2, 16. It says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they come not from the Father, but from the world. And so people have looked at this verse and said, this is kind of an outline for how sin happens in our life. That there are things that please our body, It's the lust of the flesh. And there are things that please our body that will pull us away from God. And that's a big type of temptation. Temptation, that is a a pattern to our sin. The other thing that we see is things that we want to see with our eyes and sometimes just in our mind's eye. And that's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And then there's these other things, it's just all self-serving. It's about me, 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 which it actually is at the core of all of our sin. The pride of life. I just gotta have this because I need it. I just need it for me. I need a me day. I got to treat myself. Like, that's me. I'm just doing me. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. There's a pattern for sin. And whatever it is, Satan tempts us with one thing or another, but the goal is always going to be the same for him. And the same thing he had when he tempted Jesus is this, to get us off mission, to offer us shortcuts, and to get us to bow down to him. That's what he wants. And he's going to come at us from all different ways. And did you, did you recognize that that's the same pattern that Jesus faced? The lust of the flesh? Are you hungry? The lust of the eyes? Like, I'll give you all these kingdoms. The pride of life? I can make you the king of this world. The pattern of sin is the same. And so what do we do to fight back? Jesus has given us the victory in the end, but there's still the day-to-day for us to work on. There's a couple things we can do. The first one is this recognize the lies. Recognize the lies. The most valuable question you can ask yourself when you're dealing with, with, with straying from God is what lie am I believing right now? Recognize the lie. And it takes practice. Sometimes it takes help from a friend. And always it takes the knowledge of the truth. 
You can't recognize the lies unless you know the truth. Jesus, the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you're the son of God, Jesus happened to know the truth. <laughs> I am the son of God. Well, okay, well, the Bible says this. Oh, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this. And we can't recognize the lies and fight the battle if we don't know the truth. And so this is where I want to kind of go today. How did Jesus fight the battle? Did he, did he get his dukes up and get ready to fight? Did he just dig his heels in and say, I'm just going to take this? No, he digged into the reservoir of God's word that he had internalized as a young man. He memorized this stuff. If he was going through the, the physical trial where he was so hungry uh, and he'd been all this stuff, then you got to know he, he is still physically going through this stuff. And I believe with all my heart that the scriptures he quoted were stuff he had memorized. Not because well, I'm God, I was there when they wrote it down. But he had it in his heart. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 says that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It's our offensive weapon. When we have the word of God internalized inside of us, we can fight back. We can actually use scripture, the Bible, as an offensive tool against evil in our life. Knowing it, claiming it, living it. And by being aware of the truth, we can recognize the lies. I want to read you a string of scripture here. You're going to want to write these down and just look at them later because it's going to be a lot coming at you. Psalm 119, verse 105 simply says this. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. It's like God's word illuminates the steps in front of us. And I love that passage. In the, it frustrates me too that it doesn't do this. But that passage doesn't say God's going to show you the entire trail to exactly where you need to go, which is sometimes what we ask God for. But what it says is, look, I'm going to show you where your feet need to step, which is actually a metaphor for faith as well. But how do we know which steps to take? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, uh, starting at verse 9. This is just um, this is some verses before that in the same chapter of Psalm. How can a young man stay on the path of purity? Well, by living according to your word. So I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commandments. And I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Where did Jesus pull this arsenal of scripture from? He internalized it. He'd hidden his word in the heart so he wouldn't sin against him. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. As Hebrews 4, 12. It says that God's word is living and active. It'll show up in your life when you need it. And if you've ever read the Bible uh, like one day and you're like, man, that was, that was big. It hit me like here. And then like you read it like six months later or five years later and you read the same passage again but you recognize you're going through a different phase of life and something else is happening. You're right. I look at this same passage and I feel like it's hitting me here now because God's word is living and active. And so often when we look at scripture, I, the Holy Spirit within us, if we have Jesus in our life, he's given us his spirit. And he said, I will help you know what you need to know, but you've got to be in my word. It's living and active. As we close out this wilderness men series, I've got a thought. I mean, we're all living in the wilderness from time to time. It's a big metaphor. It's the hard times of our life. It's the time where we struggle. Sometimes we're literally like all alone and we don't know where to turn. And all throughout the Bible, when we see people going through a time of the wilderness, it's a time of testing, a time of temptation, a time of challenge, but mostly a time of teaching and a time of God showing up and showing us like this, this is who I am right now. The biggest lesson from the wilderness is that you don't have to walk away in defeat 
You don't have to walk away with your head down looking for your mama and your Gatorade going, I can never win. Because <laughs> God says, you already did. You got the ring, you got the trophy, you got the medal. You have eternal life with me. And you have the promise of knowing that I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you and I will guide you. And if you know Jesus and you're committed to living your life for him, victory is yours. I want to read this passage. It's one of my favorite. Actually, some of the, uh, the song we just sang a second ago. Do you know off the top of your head one of you guys what the name of the song was we just said about victory and living hope? Man, look back at the lyrics of living hope. And it's, a lot of it's from this passage. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 55. Where, old death, is your victory? Where, old death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Let me explain that a little bit. We die. The reason that death is so terrible is because if we have sin separating us from God, we'll be eternally separated from God. That's the sting of death. The sting of death is sin. Like, if we were perfect, death wouldn't really even be a thing. That's the Adam and Eve story. That's the whole deal. Like, even if our physical bodies die, like our spirit moves on to be with God. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So the law is like, these are the rights and these are the wrongs, and this is how we say from God. And so the reason it's wrong, the reason it's sinful is because it's, it's the law. Verse 57, though, says, But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm and let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor to the Lord is not in vain. You don't have to walk with your head down. You don't have to walk defeated. You can even know that even though I have had sin in my life, God lifts me up out of that mess and he lets me win because he gives me eternity with him and a chance to be united with him. Jesus won in the desert Jesus won on the cross. Jesus brings us victory in our sin. Jesus brings us victory in our wilderness. The devil speaks lies. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And you can find the Father through me. He's won the victory. He's won the victory. And that's our lesson from the wild this week. I'd love to pray for us. Let's pray. God, you're good. Oh, man, you're good. We like winning. Um, Sometimes it takes getting beat up a little bit, though, to recognize that we are weak and that we can't do it all on our own. So I praise you, Lord, for giving us the chance to know you, to, to know that you are able, to know that you are powerful. You're good. Thank you for the lesson that Jesus showed us that he can overcome. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.